We are in the middle of a uh, wisdom series, which we're going through several books of our sacred texts and trying to discern what the heck is going on. That's basically the question. What's good? What's right? What's noble? What's true? I don't know. Do you? No, nobody does. There's lots of contradictions and everything everywhere. But hopefully we'll be able to find some semblance of a way through. That was a horrible way to start a message. <laughs> So today we're um, starting in the book of Proverbs. We've been going through Job and Psalms. Obviously, we're just doing a quick survey of things because in-depth study would take um, quite a bit of time. There's quite a bit of nuance and stuff. And so today, because we are in the book of Proverbs, I thought it would be prudent just to go over a couple really good Proverbs and just basically drop some knowledge and wisdom on you all to say, just do this and you'll be good. For example, God helps those who help themselves. Take care of that. I'm already getting a buzzer. I'm getting a buzzer. Why am I getting buzzed? Come on, this is a good proverb. It's clearly in the Bible. Oh, am I speaking to an educated crowd? Is that what's going on? This is is not going to bode well for the rest of my message then. Money is the root of all evil. Oh, more, more buzzing. Money, yeah. So, okay, well, shoot. I'm not quite sure where to go from here now. I guess... Junior, come up, close us in prayer, and we'll go from here. Uh, one of my favorite Proverbs um, that I think has uh, deep, profound, lasting, uh, forever kind of wisdom, um, move fast and break things, <laughs> which apparently they did. Congratulations. For those of you who know my disdain for certain social media platforms, you'll get that joke. Um, a picture is worth a thousand words, yes? Okay, no buzzing. Sure? Sure. Uh, beggars can't be juicers, clearly in the Bible, yes? No, oh, okay, so it's, I love it, I love it. It's, okay, fine, you can say, say the nice proverb, but as soon as you say it's in the Bible, that's, eh, I, I see where, better safe than sorry, nice, yeah, in the Bible? No, okay, all right. So a couple more, grass is always greener on the other side. The apple doesn't fall far from its tree. Money doesn't grow on trees. And if you want to be really snarky, because money is made of cotton and linen, you can say it doesn't grow on trees. But it does grow on plants. So you can kind of, if you want to be a little snotty in that particular way. (laughs) Cleanliness is next to godliness. A very clear proverbial truth that was taught to me on a regular basis when I was at some particular point in my life. I won't share when. Maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. But, um, and then one proverb that I was told is clearly in the Bible <laughs> that uh, has some incredibly racist overtones. Birds of a feather flock together. And this was told to me by uh, certain people who thought that they were loving me and talking about how people should flock together. A few are of the same bird of a particular feather. So anyway, these are Proverbs that um, many of us are familiar with, these are maxim sayings, these are truisms. They are ways in which we navigate our world and a nice compartmentalized way of uh, identifying a circumstance, a situation, and applying a saying upon that say, well, see, clearly this is, this is the way things uh, ought to be. Um, I have um, actually very much loved Proverbs for quite some time. Um, I didn't get a screenshot of this, but I started collecting some of these things. Um, All models are wrong. Some are useful. There's a proverb, a Silicon Valley proverb, that 
I've collected. It's nice. Some of these are helpful. Um, And when we get to the book of Proverbs then, because we have things like this throughout our culture, and people have been saying these things for thousands of years, all the way back to Aesop, all the way back to the ancient Greeks. We have them in virtually every culture, these nice, compact little sayings. We even still do this to this particular day. It's called tweet storming. Nice, compact truisms, maxims, simple things that are supposed to be exactly how they, uh, an exact description of reality. Because we have this in our culture, there are particular assumptions that we bring when, therefore, we get to the book of Proverbs. For example, one of those assumptions is because these are truisms and these are truisms that are from the Bible, therefore, they are not just nice maxims or principles. They are actually facts, so that when you read something in the Bible, they are facts. Very much like Mark Maslin's amazing, wonderful book that I would recommend to every single one of you, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. And it is quite literally an entire book, 200 pages, just of facts. Data points, data points, data points. Um, We can see the book of Proverbs very similarly in this particular way. When you go to a line or a saying, it is clearly a fact. For example, Proverbs 2019, the glory of youths is their strength, but the beauty of the aged is their gray hair. Clearly a fact. Own it, friends. Just own it. (laughs) Embrace it. Yes, I'm talking to myself right now. Some uh, of us also think, because of the assumptions that we bring, that Proverbs can be a mathematical calculation. Um, if you do X, then you will receive Y. We've talked about this before in our wisdom series, the mathematical calculations that we do uh, in moral or in cultural application. If this, then this. And perhaps there are those things, for example, there. Bread gained by the seat is sweet, but afterward the mouth will be full of gravel. These are, this is a principle that you could say, yeah, I mean, you could take the calculation at this particular point, it's going to be nice, but at another particular point, eh, maybe it's not going to be so nice. There are other um, implications that people have. There are other ways in which people see the proverb, such as when it is a truism, when it's a fact, when it's a mathematical calculation, you can draw all sorts of wonderful Christian lifestyle principles out of this. For example, this famous proverb, Proverb 29, 18, where there is no prophecy, the people cast off restraint, but happy are those who keep the law. That word chazon there has been translated into multiple church leadership books and church visioning books to describe, and if you can see the subtitle, his discover and pursue God's purpose for your life. The way of viewing this particular proverb is to see that where there is no vision, the people are going to perish. You need a vision for your life. Take this verse and then write an entire book around it. Now, again, I'm always careful. I don't want to disparage people when they do this kind of thing, but there might be some things that are missing from the grand scope of what the proverbs are doing. Again, because we bring these particular assumptions to the table when we think about proverbs. Mathematical calculations, clear, just factual truisms. 
The problem, of course, is that we run into situations and circumstances when certain Proverbs don't, uh, don't always apply in the exact same way, or situations and circumstances seem to be at odds. This Proverb 21, 9, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a contentious wife, which is something that I would highly recommend all of you men share in very important, intimate moments with your spouse. It will get you... Um, it will get you uh, wonderful, wonderful rewards. <laughs> Very wonderful rewards. Um, Rachel Held Evans, of course, uh, in her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, took a variety of passages, took this one, and actually did this and took a picture of herself <laughs> sitting on the corner of her house. Um, then there are some Proverbs, to be honest with you, that just simply just don't make any sense to me, if I'm absolutely honest. I, I, this one is really fascinating to me. The lazy person, this is from, sorry, I didn't put the citation, it's around uh, Proverbs 26. The lazy person says, there is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. And I'm like, that's not a lazy person, that's a smart person. That's somebody who I want to be friends with, somebody who is very observant to the world. Okay. So we've got Silicon Valley Proverbs. We've got little maxims and truisms. We've got little things and sayings that we pull and we say these things when they're very convenient and we apply them to various situations and circumstances depending upon how we might feel. Pull out that contentious wife verse right at the moment when you need it. Very convenient handhold. And various Proverbs like where there is no vision, the people perish. Very wonderful ways in which you can grab those Proverbs and apply them to your situation and circumstance because they're easy, they're simple, they're compact. They fit on a bumper sticker. You can tweet them, many of them in one tweet because they extended the character limitation. Anyway, so the Proverbs, let me just say, are that. They are, for the most part, as best as we can tell from a variety of scholarship, a collection and a compendium, a library of these variety of pieces of wisdom that are collected throughout the ages from various authors. Now, many of you will be familiar with the name Solomon as considered the wisest man in the world, but when you get to the later chapters of Proverbs, you realize that these are actually collections not just from Solomon, but from other people as well. And scholars debate like what era and what particular time frame Proverbs most likely came through several hundreds of years of sayings from different cultures, different eras, different people, all collected possibly under the supervision of Solomon because let's collect all of this together in one particular place. What I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, as both an introduction but also as a paradigm shift. What I'd like to do is I'd like to get in your brain a little bit and shift a little bit of the expectations and the assumptions that we bring to these passages because Proverbs, to me, is in many ways a very simple example of how we might actually approach the vast majority of the sacred texts that we hold. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And you go to those particular passages and you grab them and apply them when needed because they fit. The words, the phraseology, even the meaning of those, that, that axiom fits in your circumstance and situation. If you don't believe, if you do not believe that women have 
leadership ability, authority, capability in the church. You can go to 2 Timothy and grab that verse, that wonderful verse that says women shall remain silent in the church and use that and apply that and put it on your bulletin and uh, you, you know, write a book about it. And you can take that and do that with that if you want. Um, if you happen to believe certain other things, you can just start going and grabbing. The way in which we approach Proverbs then traditionally my estimation, my thinking, my sense is that we actually kind of do that with everything. We take, Proverbs is easy because it's a verse, it's two lines, it's, it's there. And so we can apply it. And so we think about the rest of the text in the same way. And so what I'd like to do is go back a little bit, take a look at some things about how Proverbs is set up and what are some key highlights about the structure and the framing of it. And I'd like to draw a radically, what I think is a radically different conclusion about Proverbs and wisdom literature that hopefully will shift the way we think about virtually everything else in our text. I might have bitten off a little bit more than I could chew. Don't bite off more than you can chew. There's a proverb for you. And I think I've just violated that one. So very simply, just to get a quick survey of things, Proverbs has a bunch of design patterns in them. You'll see them list, you'll see them when you read through. Three things for, three things for. It's a design pattern. It's a way of giving emphasis to particular pieces. There's mnemonics and acrostics. There's also thesis and antithesis. Let me show you some examples of this. From Proverbs 30. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high sea. There are your three things. And the way of a man with a young woman. I do not understand love, <laughs> right? So this is a design parent. It's a wonderful way of setting things up. I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I don't understand this, which is a poetic way of saying, I, if I don't understand that, how much more do I really not understand this? I, I just have no clue. There's acrostics in the book of Proverbs. You'll find this specifically in chapter 30, where I know you may not be able to read the Hebrew there, but if you take a look at the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet, gimel, dal, hey, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you'll find that each particular line lines up with that next line right there. Starts with Aleph, starts with Bet, starts with Gimel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a design pattern there. It's a way of creating an acrostic for a mnemonic. A lot of scholars would suggest when you see things like this, both the three and the four pattern as well as the acrostic, you're actually looking at school curriculum. We may be reading texts that students have studied in schools throughout the ancient world. That's what's also fascinating about these texts, too. Um, texts that were designed to raise up the next generation in a way of the wisdom of the elders and the ancients and in the tradition, of course. And then, of course, my favorite, don't, do not, do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. Fantastic advice. Next verse. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. And you are fully justified, and you go, what? Thesis, antithesis. Saying one thing in one situation and circumstance, and saying the absolute complete opposite to yield a different result. Okay, we got some design patterns. We got acrostics, we got mnemonics. We've got three and four, three and four. One passage where it's six and seven, like really stacking the deck. 
We've got thesis, antithesis. And then we've got wonderful imagery and metaphors. This is one of the most prominent metaphors throughout Proverbs, which has been uh, foisted upon youth, uh, Christian youth throughout uh, the ages regarding stay away from the adulterous woman. It's, of course, very, very appropriate for pubescent teenagers. But the metaphor here is not so much about sexual dalliances. It's much more about the metaphor of women being on both sides of this particular equation. One being wisdom, insight, thoughtfulness, and the other one being seduction. But they are not about sex. It's about being wise or it's about being foolish. And they're using the metaphor, because it's men writing this, most, of, most likely, they're using the metaphor of women to describe these two particular paths. So for those of us who have been traumatized, I suppose, by the various proverbs to say, well, it's really all about just keeping, keeping everything nice and straight, this is actually about much more than that. It's about seeking after wisdom rather than being foolish, which is a huge theme in the book of Proverbs. And then perhaps one of the most important themes, one of the most important overlays throughout the entire book is that this is actually a generation of wisdom that's being passed down, which is why you have it in your text today. My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. In other words... I'm giving you these axioms, these truisms, these nice, compact statements, because I want you, my child, to have better life, to have an abundant life, to take the mistakes of my life, the varieties of experience that I've had, and I want to give that to you so you don't have to go down the path that I've gone down, so that you can capitalize on my mistakes so that you can live and thrive. There were moments in my life, in my father's life, in my father's father's life, where we didn't get this right. And along the way, we picked up these pieces of wisdom. Oh, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. You might happen to steal, and it feels good for a moment, but in the end, it's going to turn to gravel. These are things that we've picked up along the way, my friend, my child, my beloved. I'm passing them on to you because I want you to also own these so that you will also have abundant life and welfare, good things. If you stand back from this and survey all of these things, Proverbs is not a list of facts. Proverbs is also not mere mathematics, as if you're doing some sort of moral equation. Do this and do this. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about Job and Psalms, etc. It is not that simple to say, this is it, this is true, and that's, just don't argue with it, and just do and obey. When you think through the design pattern, the educational curriculum, the fact that this is wisdom being shared with others, there's a deeper stream that is happening in Proverbs that I think we miss because we come with these expectations that I just need to grab a piece of truth, a piece of knowledge. And as best as I can articulate it, and I'll share some more about this, what I sense is going on here is that Proverbs is actually a compendium of principles. Those are the sayings that are actually exhorting us to reason together, to thoughtfully debate 
to rigorously discuss and to argue with one another and with the Proverbs for the sake of discovery. Let me say this again. I think this is really important. The compendium of principles is not for you to just take it without thinking and do. The compendium of principles is to prompt you to consider, is that true? That's why you have the thesis antithesis. That's why you have things that just don't make sense with the rest of the scriptures sometimes. That's why you may have contradictions at times. The principle is there to ask you also the question, is this true in your generation, in your age, in your time? In other words, you take a proverb, you take the teaching, you take the lists, you take the poems and the acrostics, and then you argue with them and you reason through and you thoughtfully debate. What did he mean by that? How does this apply? Times have changed. My circumstance is different from my father. But the principles are there to prompt us to seek wisdom. One of the fundamental themes throughout the Proverbs and wisdom literature is to seek after it. Don't just, don't just agree to it. Search after it. Long for it. And pursue wisdom. I forgot to put that slide in there. But you have that theme in there too. In other words, it's, again, don't just blindly, mindlessly obey the simple thing. Pursue. Here's the principle. Here's the axiom. Here's the nice proverb. Now, wrestle with that. Does it make sense? Is it true? Does it apply in your situation and circumstance? That to me, my friends, is a radically different paradigm than what I've been taught. I think what many of us have probably wrestled with to simply say, this is God's word. This is the Bible and therefore just do it. But what I'm proposing is that the Proverbs is a wonderful example of compacted principles that do this. They exhort us, challenge us, encourage us to reason. Think. Use your brain. Argue with one another. Argue with the people in the past. Argue with the people in the present. Is this true? Does this actually apply? And do that for the sake of discovering and capitalizing on that wisdom. Because it is, in many ways, the pursuit of wisdom that is the apex of what wisdom actually is. Not the blind acceptance of a principle. Does that make sense? It is the pursuit of wisdom that is actually wisdom. This is something I've been wrestling with for a long time. I've been arguing with myself and others about this. And then I found, ran into Yoram Hazoni's amazing book, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scriptures, where he articulates this better than I think that I ever could. But it falls right into line with some of the thinking that I've been wrestling with for many times, for many years. He posits at the very beginning of his book that many of us have grown up with a reason-revelation dichotomy. Remember the dichotomies that we've worked with up there, down here, soul and body, human and nature? Well, he's positing another one, which I would agree with. Reason is something that the Greeks do. Reason is something that philosophy does. Reason is something that thoughtful, reasonable, rational people who have a brain argue with. That's what reason. But then there's this other category, category called revelation. And revelation is the divine golden string that comes down from heaven that you shan't not argue with and just do. So what he has suggested, and he spends several pages developing this argument, is that when you look throughout Christian history and Christian theology, you start to see this divide happening. So much so 
that because the divide happens, that because we believe that this is the word of God and divinely inspired, inerrant, whatever kind of word you want to put on this particular text, therefore it cannot be reason. It is revelation. And revelation gets a higher category. It's, it's weighted higher. It's much more important than reason. When you split those apart, And when you make them kind of contentious with one another, then when philosophy comes along, when biology comes along, when science comes along, when those kinds of attitudes and disciplines come along, how agreeable are religious people to that? Not very. Because we valued valued revelation over reason. So he's taken a couple pages to argue this. And then he comes to say this about the Hebrew Scriptures. It is my contention, read into the Hebrew Scriptures, and notice that, read into the Scriptures. The reason-revelation dichotomy becomes a kind of distorting lens, greatly exaggerating aspects of the old Hebrew texts that their authors would have never chosen to emphasize, even as it renders much that was of significance to them all but invisible. This means that in reading the Hebrew Scriptures as works of revelation as opposed to reason, we come pretty close to destroying them. We accidentally delete much of what these texts were written to say, and then, having accomplished this, we find that the texts don't really speak to us as normal men and women. I found this to be incredibly true. The level of biblical literacy is just declining rapidly over the last decades because, well, it doesn't really speak to me. And so what he's going to argue and what I would like to propose to you is that these texts, Proverbs being one of them, is actually a text of reason, not just of revelation. It is a text that is put in front of you to say, now my friends, my colleagues, my brothers and my sisters, argue Reason. Think. Use your brain. Don't just blindly obey. One of the examples of that, and I would say that this is found throughout the entire text, I've just chosen a couple examples. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a text that describes the new covenant, the new covenant that is coming. And because of how we read these texts, we think about it in very emotional, I would say, hallmarky kind of ways. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, quite literally, a physical tablet, though I was their husband, says the Lord. A new covenant is coming. This is the whole Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament kind of dichotomy. This is something that, oh, those people, man, they had it written on the tablet and they didn't obey. This is horrible. So Jeremiah is going to come along and do something brand new. What is he going to do? This is what God's going to do. But this covenant is one that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah, my teachings within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, when you hear that phrase, I will write it on their hearts, you automatically think something emotional. You automatically think something affective. You think something like this. This is what comes up when you think of heart. But 
what is most likely happening in these texts because the Hebrew word for heart does not mean heart. It means mind, your brain. What's happening here in this phrase, when God is saying, I am going to put this teaching into your mind, which is the Hebrew there, some scholars have suggested, and has only been one of them, that this is actually a clear articulation of the value of your reasoning capabilities to discern what is good, what is right, what is true. In other words, I mean, this is just so, this is so radical to me. I don't know if it's radical. It's radical to me. My conception of the religious movement of Judaism and Christianity has been God says this, and we discard everything else that man ever does, because God clearly said this. And what seems to be happening is that kind of mythological explanation of religion is slowly being chipped away with with these texts. That there is a development of rationality, there's a development of reason within the Hebrew scriptures themselves. To say, you have a mind. Did not God create you with a mind? Did not God create you with rationality? Did not God create you with reason? Did not God create you to be able to have an articulated, thoughtful engagement with this world? And the answer through these texts is, yes, he did. Yes, God did. God gave you that capability. Now use it. Because other religions, none that you would know, but other religions, other ideologies, just simply take whatever is divinely given and do it whatever it says, blindly, without thought. And here in Jeremiah, some scholars and I would propose that we start to see the same development of rationality and reason that you do in all the other philosophies. Hazoni goes on, I'm giving you just a very brief snippet, because he goes on to describe further the various language, the various structures, the various um, comparative texts with other like Greek Hellenistic philosophical texts. Uh, So if you're interested, you can grab that book and be a geek along with me. Another passage that seems to lend itself in this particular way is a passage we say every single week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now that phrase, Shema, here, does mean hear, does mean listen, does mean obey. It means all of those things. But as we've talked about before, the Hebrew is just intimately uh, meshed with all sorts of levels of definition. And one of them, when you listen, when you hear, it quite literally means to pay attention to. In other words, a religious mythological experience of the divine is don't pay attention, just do. But yet here in the Shema, here in the hero Israel, pay attention. Love God and love people. And by the way, pay attention to how you love God and how you love people. By the way, pay attention to how others do that as well. Pay attention. Think it through. And then all the way through the New Testament, I think Jesus is very much in line with this. At Caesarea Philippi, in Matthew chapter 16, many of you have heard us talk about this before, he says this in this wonderful uh, discussion with Peter and the disciples there, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a very uncomfortable phrase, because keys are authority, the ability to do something. Binding and loosing, bound and loose, is a way for you to interpret and apply said teachings. I have given you, my friends, Jesus says, the authority 
to make interpretations upon all of the teachings I have given you. And whatever interpretation you make, whatever you bind on earth, will also be bound in heaven. Heaven will somehow agree with you. Whatever you loose on earth, whatever you do not permit on earth, will somehow be made permissible in heaven. Heaven, as a euphemism most likely of God, is in some ways going to agree with however you think and interpret this particular passage. And by the way, every other teaching I've given you. Why? Because Proverbs, teachings, axiom, maxims are not mathematical moral calculations. They are principles that prompt you to think about how this works, how this applies. This is a very complicated roundabout way of don't turn off your brain. And the reason why that's so important to say is because much of the theology, much of our past mythology, must much of the way in which religious structures kind of construct themselves and build themselves up is exactly that. God said it. You're supposed to believe it. That settles it. It was a very clear, articulated proverb that was taught to me. Therefore, don't argue with it. Don't question it. Don't disrespect it. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And what I'm proposing to you, my friends, is that the proverbs as very clear, articulated, compact principles were never designed to just be mathematical calculations that you don't engage with. In fact, it's just the opposite. They are collected there in contradiction, in nuance, in various patterns, sometimes ambiguous, sometimes nonsensical, because you, my friends, are reasonable human beings, rational, thoughtful, capable of discerning wisdom, because the most important thing is not to blindly just do. The most important thing is to actually pursue it. And the principle prompts you and exhorts you to do that. So my friends, the proverbial wisdom that we are going to engage with over the next couple weeks through my friends and colleagues is going to be, I'm proposing to you, a fully inclusive set, which includes seeking and searching for wisdom, not just blindly accepting. The discernment between wisdom and folly, which, by the way, folly can sometimes come in a blind application of perceived wisdom. The acceptance of wisdom from others, which means that the generations that have passed it down, they've learned something. Let me think about that and how it applies. And then the ability to reason with wisdom. The ability to reason. Which means that you go to these texts and you go to our tradition and you go to our stories because you, my friends, are brilliant. Did you know that? That's what you came here for. To hear somebody tell you how brilliant you are and thoughtful and engaged. And you can do this, which I find to be incredibly helpful when young people say, well, we got five minutes to go. And they say, no, we actually have four minutes and 32 seconds to go. It's like, it's, that's not very wise to say back to me, my friend. <laughs> I think this is very, very helpful in various applications because when it comes to things like the law, I wish we could have spent more time in this book. I'll just reference it to you. Jamal Green's How Rights Went Wrong spends his entire book articulating how a just narrow, 
focused commitment to the letter of the law has actually violated the very rights that that law was intended to keep. Why? Because the way in which some of our judicial structures are set up is in the revelations category. This is, well, then I must apply it here. And that's just how, that's what freedom of speech means. Therefore, it has, without thinking through, what are the actual results? What what are the actual outcomes of the application of that law in that particular situation and circumstance? The absence of reason and the absence of rationality can lead to all sorts of violations of the very principles we are trying to uphold. And then, of course, in our situation and circumstance, religious institutions, churches, are susceptible to the very same thing as well. God clearly said, so just do. And what I'd like to encourage you, because this has been central to Sparks culture for, since the very beginning. God may clearly have said, now argue with it and figure out why God's wrong. And figure out how maybe we might be misunderstanding or somebody has a different application or there's, there's a nuance or there's an application that is distinctly different or in, in this time, in this space, it might mean something different. Oh, wait, wait. Paul is talking to a patriarchal culture here. Then he's talking to a matriarchal culture here. Jesus is in the Jewish religious section when he says this. Then he's in the pagan, secular, Hellenized section when he says this. Oh, this is starting to make much more sense when you can start reasoning through it all and to start thinking through. These principles are brilliant and insightful, but not because we don't think about them. It's exactly the opposite. They are brilliant and insightful because they prompt us to consider and to think and to reason, and to argue with one another. So, my friends, my encouragement and exhortation to us, to myself as well, has been, you know what? We can shift the way in which we approach these texts. We can shift the way in which we think. We can shift the way in which we think about Proverbs and all this wisdom literature. And one of the biggest shifts that we can make is that we don't have to shut off our brains. And in fact, the text themselves are exhorting us to engage and argue with them because the pursuit and the love of wisdom, that is itself what is wise. To shut off your brain and to simply accept without thinking, that's actually what is foolish. We're going to turn to communion And every week when we take this sacrament, we are engaging in some ways in some sort of exercise in wisdom as well. Because depending upon what is set up here, depending upon what is happening in your week, depending upon where you might happen to be in your journey, depending upon all of those factors and more, how you take communion and what it means to you can change and can shift. The principle is the same. The liturgy is the same. Jesus is the same. The presence is the same. But your wrestling changes. Your argument develops. Your discernment waxes and wanes. And when you do, this is what's so beautiful and brilliant. The meaning that this sacrament has can also evolve. And you can discover new layers of profundity and 
discovery and wisdom and insight that you may not have seen before. So as we come and share communion together, my encouragement to you is to think through what, what does this actually mean? We're going to say the words. Those are the Proverbs. Those are the principles. Those are the axioms. These are the truisms. What does it mean? What circumstance in my life does the night in which he was betrayed? Betrayed? Has there been a moment in your life when you've been betrayed? Our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, broke it, giving it to his disciples. Man, I know what it's like to feel broken. Take, eat, this is my body that is given for you. A gift? This is a gift? Once again, it's not just a sacrament that you do, it's a gift. And do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. After supper, this is dessert? And he gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. Wait, wait, wait. I've heard that phrase before. I've read that before. The sacrament of drinking the wine symbolic of a sacrifice is something that also lives in my mind and my heart. It lives there, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So my friends, thank you for being wise and thoughtful engaged in questioning. Let us come to the table with that same posture. Every single one of you, all of you are welcome at this table. Please come while we sing.